This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbor. I'm sorry for being delayed. I couldn't hear in my headset the introduction being played. So I trust that you can hear me now. I am Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and you're listening to The Word to Stand On for Life, a radio program dedicated to answering your Bible questions, whatever they are, maybe something you're going through, we'll do the best that we can. Remember, the program is always more interesting when you call 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. That's 340-9585. You can also call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free mobile app. That's the Calvary Chapel mobile app. Remember that if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is by using the hands-free feature on the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now button. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Well, because it's Monday, we got some stuff going on here. Our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies tonight at 7 o'clock. Ladies, you can watch it at Livestream. Paula is actually teaching tonight. That's at 7 o'clock. Child care is provided. Uh, and I uh, hope you had a good weekend. We really, really did. I've got a lot to talk about. But I don't want to do it all at once. And know Paula, when she gets here on Thursday, is going to want to share her heart, too. Uh, but let me just say a couple of things about Joy of Jesus. We had, um, by far, the biggest attended event uh, we've ever had. It was uh, uh, unbelievable the number of people that was at Travis Park. Um, dozens and dozens and dozens of people made professions of faith, which is what we get excited about. Uh, our church was there, and I told them yesterday in service, they made me really proud. I'm the proudest pastor ever to watch people serving with so much excitement and so much joy. Uh, it was a, just an, an unbelievable blessing. Uh, when a pastor sees the fruit of his work, um, before his eyes, the way I was able to experience it, it was wonderful. Just just tremendous. The, the amount of effort that went in uh, was great. Uh, it started out a little cold, but we had good weather. It was a great day. The concert portion of it, which was new for us this year, that also went great. Uh, uh, Jocelyn was wonderful, and uh, our youth pastor, um, Pastor Nelly, and his wife, Michi, who are also recording artists, a hip-hop artist, um, did some great, great stuff. It just, it just was really, really a great day. Uh, one thing that was particularly 
thrilling for me is that I got to meet so many of you in this listening audience uh, all day long. Um, uh, people from our church were bringing people saying, Pastor on this is so-and-so from the radio ministry. And we got to meet so many of you, and it was so great uh, to get to know you. I'm sorry if you were disappointed when you actually saw my face and what it looked like, but we really, really had a great time, and I appreciate you taking the time. A special shout-out to our listener named Michael, who, who didn't just show up. He showed up to work. He said, where can I be used? I'll do anything. And bless his heart, we had a great time. Um, enormous crowds. Lots and lots of food given away, lots of clothes given away. Um, the, the lines were long all day long. The haircut line, we had extra help this year. We thought uh, we wouldn't have a line. That line uh, went well beyond, uh, just as the food did, well beyond the, the 3 o'clock shutoff date of the event. Uh, it just was really, really a great, great time. So thank you all for your prayers. I appreciate it more than you could possibly know. Uh, let's go to uh, the phones and talk to Jordan on line one. Jordan, you gave me a lot of joy this week. I've been praying for you. Thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hey, I'm glad you remember me. So um, I got two questions again for you. Um, I appreciate the advice last week, but my one first question is, is do I get the weed in, uh, just a straight answer. In, keep it there and let it taper off with my wife as she uh, uses it um, periodically to help her out or get rid of it right, right away. But then there's kind of a void, I guess you can say, left there. And so, you know, uh, it'll be a lot more difficult, I would say, for her. I haven't really needed it or wanted it um, any more since we talked last time. haven't used it since. Um, and, you know, it's not really that much of a... I guess you can say struggle to get rid of it for me as I thought it would be because um, I did smoke every day for five years, but it was a lot easier for me to get rid of it than I thought. So first question is, you know, keep it in the home and taper it off until it's done or get rid of it right away. And then second question is um, there's been two things on my heart that I would say my conscience is speaking or God is speaking to me on, and it is uh, lust. I've had an issue with, you know, lust, and I, you know, confessed it to my wife, and she was hurt by it and about a month ago, and she forgave me right away, but I asked her to help me out with it, you know, so we can get rid of it and, you know, kind of have power over the temptation of sin. She said she really wasn't able to help me, and I don't, you know, what's a biblical guide to, to really get rid of that? Um, Jordan, let me ask two questions. I can answer, then I can answer both your questions. First, is your wife a Christian? Yeah, she um, is okay. Christian, um, and okay. I baptized her about uh, three months ago. Okay, cool. And um, the second thing, what kind of help when you when you ask your wife, uh, can you help me get rid of the, the the lust or help me with this lust problem? What kind of help were you asking for? Just. Um, to kind of question me or to be on me about things so, you know, nothing yeah, happens okay. again. Um, okay. You know, uh, yep. just uh, to kind of be more forward about it so we can talk about it and talk through the issues we're having and um, that kind of help. 
Okay, Jordan, thank you. I'm going to ask you to listen off air uh, or off the phone uh, just because uh, my answer is going to be pretty in-depth and I don't want you to miss it. And if you do miss any of it, maybe this would be a great thing for you and your wife to listen to together. Uh, it will be archived at our website, calvarysa.com, by tomorrow uh, if you want to listen to it again. So thank you, Jordan. I'll, I'll address the questions. The first thing I want to say uh, to you, Jordan, about the, the, the marijuana, uh, and you said it's been easier for you than you thought it was going to be well what you're experiencing is the power of the holy spirit and what i want you to understand is that same power is going to be necessary for your problem with lust so it's very important that that you give the holy spirit an opportunity um to 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 fuel uh, your desire to, to please the Lord. Remember, instead of pleasing Jordan, now your life is focused on pleasing Jesus. And the way you do that is to, to walk in holiness. Uh, the same thing will be true for your wife. Um, uh, I understand the reticence. I understand the the, the, the small faith when it comes uh, to this area, something that's been uh, part of your life regularly for a long, long time. Uh, in our previous conversations, you talked about some of the issues that you wife struggles with but this is an opportunity for you and her to walk through this together and experience together the power of God's Spirit to deliver you uh, from this sort of of trial first uh, Corinthians 10 13 says that that uh, no temptation has seized you and and your goes for your wife as well except that which is common to man in other words whatever you're going through other Christians have gone through and overcome and then the next four words are critical. It says, and God is faithful. It doesn't say Jordan is faithful or Jordan's wife is faithful. It says, and God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. And when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under the temptation. That means to overwhelm the temptation. It doesn't mean that the test is going to go away or the desire is going to go away all at once. What it means is that the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in both you and your wife and you both need to experience it individually. You need to experience it personally. So here's what you do. You start to wash your wife in the water of the word. Sit down together. Take time during the day. Remember, these are battles that, that you've been fighting for a long time and, and have been losing. And now to win, you need to be equipped. So you and your wife sit down and start reading together. Now, I know I told you last week to read the Gospel of John, and you've been doing that. But you and your wife together, just read it out loud. Uh, read the book of Ephesians as it relates to these tests and temptations. Read the book of Ephesians and focus primarily on the first three chapters. They're not long. You can read the first three chapters in the book of Ephesians in excuse me, in less than 15 minutes. So read it out loud to her, read one chapter, then give her the Bible and tell her to read it out loud to you and then talk about it and read the first three chapters. The divine design of that book is such that when you recognize what Jesus has done for you, how much God loved you, then the desire that will well up in your heart is to serve him, to please him instead of pleasing yourselves. And this is something that you and your wife can do together relative to getting the weed out of the house. You have to get it away from you. Destroy it. Don't allow temptation. The Bible says to flee from temptation. Uh, Again, that's going to be prominent in my answer to the second question as well. Flee from temptation. 
and um, just don't let it be anywhere near you. Uh, even if you're strong enough, because it's not as hard as you thought it was, you're leaving it in a place where your wife can be tempted, and your job is to present her holy and blameless before the Lord. The way to do that, I said, was in by washing her in the water of the Word. But you don't want to put a stumbling block right before her eyes. So it's important you understand. Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit, the context there is in power, to those who obey Him. So... Whenever you're obedient, the power that raised Christ from the dead is yours. It's at your disposal, and you can, and your wife can overcome this temptation. It's very, very important. Jesus is going to leave some things in your life to teach you to fight, and you need to learn to fight. Now, the question with the lust, uh, which I assume uh, Jordan is accompanied by pornography, um, you have to distance yourself from it. Once again, the New Testament tells us to flee from sexual immorality. So that means we can't be where it is. It's that simple. So you've got to put your own safeguards. It's not fair to you of you to ask your wife to help you when Jesus has already promised the help. Your wife has her own struggles. By the way, you've added to her struggles in terms of insecurity by confessing the sin to her. Now, I'm not against confessing the sin. That's not the point I'm about to make. But whenever a woman hears that her husband is looking at pornography or battling lust, the enemy always says to the woman that you're not enough for him. He's not satisfied with you. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. Whatever it is, the woman is always going to feel condemned, and she's never going to know who you're thinking about when you're actually physically involved with the woman that you married. She's always going to wonder, and I say that because I know how the enemy works. So you've got to make her understand this is your failing, not hers, and that by the power of God, you're going to overcome this because you want to be the godly man. It doesn't mean the temptation is going to go away. It means that you can stand when it comes. And here's the most practical way I know, Jordan to help you beat this issue with lust. It's to be with Jesus. You're not going to look at filth on a computer screen if Jesus is there. And even if you stumble momentarily and you start to look at it, then what you say is, I don't want to look at this. Jesus, I want to be with you. If Jesus were there in the room with you physically, you wouldn't look at that. Well, he's there with you. While it's not physical, he's there with you. And you're dragging him through the filthy things that we men do. So it's really, really important. Your wife needs to know that this is not her problem, it's yours. And that you love her so much. And since you've already confessed, you tell her, I'm so sorry that I opened this door um, for the enemy to, to bring doubt and condemnation into your life, into your heart. But together we're going to beat this. And then just show her what it's like to be married to a man who's with Jesus. To show her every day. These are problems that he's already overcome. This isn't something you can do in your own strength. It's not even something you want to do in your own strength, Jordan. But what it is, is something that if you do it for Jesus, the power of heaven is available to you. 
So again, you confessed it, tell her you're sorry, but it's not a good thing to have her hold you accountable. Uh, if, if you're more comfortable giving her all of the passwords to everything that you access on the computer screen um, uh, or your phone, you, you do that. But every time you pick up the phone or every time you go to the computer to look at something that you know you're not supposed to look at, I want you to think that this is the woman you promised God that you would love, honor, and cherish. And the minute you start looking at filth, you've broken those promises. This is a woman that God brought to you. This is a woman that he's chosen you out of all the men on the earth for, Jordan. He's chosen you to represent him to her. And your sin is first and foremost against God. Psalm 51. By the way, that's a great psalm for you to read. Psalm 51. Listen to David's heart. And once you've repented, remember that apart from Jesus, you're going to do it again and again and again. This isn't something you can beat in your own strength. The devil's going to try to convince you you can do it in your own strength. But your accountability is to the Lord. So consider that prayerfully. You and your wife together start reading in the Word. And you're going to see what God is going to do. In fact, I'm going to go out on a limb here, Jordan. As you and your wife, and, and I, you haven't indicated whether she's eager for this process or, or reluctant, um, but, but as your faith grows together in the Word, I promise you God will reinvigorate your marriage in every possible way. And remember, His job, Jesus' job for you, is to make your wife feel like the most beautiful, the most precious, the most loved woman on the face of the earth. And she's never going to feel that way if you're looking at some other woman on a computer. It's an important battle, but Jordan, he's already shown you his power. Get rid of the sin. Get rid of the source of temptation, whether it's marijuana or pornography. Instead, start to enjoy the relationship with your wife that God wants the both of you to have. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate the call, and I appreciate you being so candid with us. 340-9585. It's 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is uh, a question from Nacho from our email inbox. Uh, he says, is there a dichotomy between Acts 5.5 and Ananias who dies for lying to the Lord and to Simon the sorcerer's selfish request in Acts chapter 8, verse 20? Peter was present at both incidents. And I'm not sure, I don't know what the dichotomy that you're seeing might be, but, but the um, incidents are, uh, are similar in that uh, we have lying and hypocrisy going on in both cases. Now, in Acts chapter 5, verse 5, when Ananias and his wife Sapphira are killed by God, and make no mistake, they're killed by God, uh, this is a statement that God is making. This is a pure church. From this up to this point, the new church that started in Acts chapter 2 has been facing persecution from without. Well, this is when the devil sort of changes tactics and begins to persecute the church from within. And Ananias and Sapphira are his first subjects. They said they would give everything they sold something for when they really had already planned to sell uh, their land or their belongings and give half of it away and keep half for themselves. God wasn't asking them to lie. God wasn't asking them to give anything. 
But this was hypocrisy in its purest form. And Ananias and Sapphira were judged. God was saying, this is my heart toward hypocrisy. Now, what Simon the Sorcerer, Simon Magus, did was just as bad, but he wasn't a believer. Now, he believed Philip's message. He knew that it was real, but he didn't appropriate it personally. And so when he was busted, instead of repenting, he said uh, to Peter, pray that these things will never happen. Peter said, um, um, get away from me, uh, for you have no part in this ministry. Um, may your money perish with you. Literally, he was saying, may you go to hell with your money. Because he asked to buy the power of God, because he wanted to use it for his own gain. But he wasn't a believer, so God didn't kill him. And in fact, the man Simon Magus became a really important, uh, infamously so, um, figure in the early church, an enemy of the church, an enemy of the apostles. He was the one in Samaria who liked having the power. He liked having influence. He certainly wasn't someone who, who spoke for God, but he was a false teacher who pretended to speak for God, and he bewitched the people. So uh, that was the most important thing about about this. One, God dealt with his own people much more harshly. He dealt with Simon the sorcerer uh, another way. Thank you very much. Let's go to John calling from Castroville. John, good to hear from you again. You're on the air. Yeah, how are you today, Pastor Ron? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good. I have a question about Matthew chapter 7 uh, verses 13 through 15. And my question really relates to you know, it's a, it's the the narrow gate which few find that leads to uh, life, and the wide gate that leads to destruction. And most people find the wide gate. Well, I realize that that you know when you know I'm saved, you're saved, and many of your listeners are saved. And once you're saved, you're saved. But I'm I'm concerned. I'm questioning verse 15, and it says that. Um, Beware of the false prophets, for they are ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you equate that to our prosperity gospel that we're hearing from a lot of pastors today, where everyone sh- is is or should be healthy and everyone should be wealthy, when we know that's not the case? Yeah. Yeah, John, I, I really do. That, that's a great connection. I've never thought of it directly in those terms uh, in setting the Sermon on the Mount. But uh, they are ravenous wolves who are are stealing, picking the pockets of, of uh, the people in their church, uh, not only getting wealthy at their expense, but doing far more damage with their spiritual false teaching. So I think it's oh, important, absolutely. especially as Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, as he's getting ready to close it in chapter 7, um, he's, 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 he brings this, this sort of this imposition on the, on, the, on the message, and he looks at people and said, there's a, there's a narrow gate, and, and it's, it's a hard gate to find. Few find it. Um, he's later going to say, I am the gate. Um, but then he talks about this wide um, gate that's, that's, that leads to destruction, that many travel. 
Um, and then immediately he follows it by talking about watch out for false prophets because they're pointing you to the wrong gate. Now, specifically in context, John, he's talking about the religious leaders. Remember, they were always around when Jesus was talking and they would be with their long flowing robes and their beards and their phylacteries and, and they would have this condescending look as Jesus was teaching. But Jesus is doing everything he can to point to them. Those are the ones that are leading you in the wrong direction. Now, it's, it's our job as New Testament Christians, to point in that same direction, John, for uh, the, the false prophets, the false teachers today. And um, you bringing up the prosperity gospel teaching uh, is a perfect connection, a perfect application, uh, because they truly are ripping off the people of God. So I, I think that's a great observation, John. Yeah, Thank you very much. Bring it up is, as mm-hmm. you know, uh, I share uh, a gospel message on every prayer on the square meeting that I do. And mm-hmm. I shared it last week, but I didn't put the connection together. But yep. I keep hearing it and keeps reading it, and I'm going, he's telling me I need to make sure people understand that. So I just yep. want to make sure you, you, you do that. Yeah, you do, John. Not, not, just, fault, not just prosperity teaching, but... Uh, easy believism teaching, you know, the, the what's wrongly called abundant grace teaching. Uh, God loves you the way you are. It's okay to sin. Uh, the, those professing churches and their doctrine that says it's okay to live uh, an openly homosexual lifestyle or uh, a heterosexual lifestyle that is involved in willful sin. They're also ferocious wolves and people are being destroyed by that kind of teaching. So uh, I think you're hearing from the Lord just fine, John. Okay, well, I do. Thank you very much, and you have a wonderful day, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Victor, if you can hold on the line, we'll get you right after the break. You've been listening to the Word to Stand On for Life. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday program. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Lord willing, I'll make it through the break. We'll be back in two minutes. to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of the program victor on line two thanks for your patience you're on the air victor are you there oh i guess we I guess we lost Victor. Victor, I'm sorry. The line is open. If you want to call back, please forgive us. Uh, A couple of calls right back to back. So um, we'd love to have you call. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from our email inbox from Richard. Uh, Pastor Ron, do we receive the Holy Spirit at birth or when we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior? I know that the Holy Spirit could not come until Jesus completed his work here on earth. And at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was manifested among the believers. Uh, Richard, we, we do not receive the Holy Spirit at birth. Jesus said we are born condemned um, already. Um, we receive the Holy Spirit by believing in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. Uh, when Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to his disciples, he breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit of God. Um, it also says, For he had not yet been given. Well, the same process 
believing in Jesus Christ, accepting Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that's when the Spirit of God comes within us. So there's no other way. Um, the nefarious teaching that we receive the Spirit at birth or through infant baptism is more of the false teaching that John was just talking about. We have to be very, very careful of that. Uh, we receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, we're sealed. Ephesians 1.14 um, at birth. Um, when we believe, we are saved by grace through faith, and that meaning the faith, not of ourselves. In fact, we don't have that faith. Yet the faith is a gift from God. And when we receive, then the Holy Spirit seals the deal, and we belong to Jesus Christ. So I think that uh, answers your question. Thank you very, very much. Here is a question. It says, from our mobile app, Anonymous. And then the note, yes, I'm in your congregation with a smile. Uh, Yesterday during your sermon of Romans 10, I didn't quite get verses 6 and 7. Would you please explain that section to me again? I apologize. I must have missed that part of your teaching. Uh, I must have been asking Sam for a tap into his espresso IV. (laughs) Our announcer, Sam, who's also the producer on this program, uh, he had an IV thing that was... uh, had a uh, name on it, Espresso, uh, and that was just because everybody was so tired after the long weekend at, at Travis Park. Did I say it was great? We had such a good time, but everybody was tired, and uh, so that was the joke of the day yesterday. Um, Romans 10, the, the the point of the message, and yesterday was one of those days where you're fighting through being tired, but I told Paula after church that it seemed like every message lasted like 10 minutes. Uh, Such a great portion of scripture, the simplicity and the beauty of the call of God. And um, um, I, it just went too fast for me. I could have taken a lot more time. So it was probably my problem and not yours. Uh, but, but basically what those two verses are saying is that, um, Going back a verse, uh, Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Uh, And then Moses describes in this way the righteousness that's by the law. The man who does these things will live by them. Those are the two verses ahead of it. Then he says, but the righteousness comes by faith. And this is a contrast. Um, A lot of people try to approach God on the basis of, of law, doing good things or being good. But then he says, the righteousness is by faith. He says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the world. But what does it say? Verse 8 says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth and it's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we are proclaiming. Now, the reason it's so simple and wonderfully so is because God doesn't make us do some great work to get to heaven. You see, salvation is not found in heaven, it's found in Jesus. And his work, Jesus' work, continues here on earth in the person of the Holy Spirit. So we don't have to go to heaven and do spectacular things or work our way into heaven. We don't have to descend into the abyss to get beat up and pounded till we feel bad enough to ask Jesus to save it. No, instead, all we have to do is recognize that he is near us always through his word. So that's what I was talking about yesterday. This is just so simple. We don't have to do anything. We're not on probation. Uh, We don't have to approve ourselves. Jesus is never far from any of us. He is as close as our next breath. So anonymous in my congregation, that's what we were talking about. And it's a beautiful message, those first ten verses. And I'm actually going to enjoy the next study. We're going to go from back to 10 and to verse 17. Uh, 
in our study coming up for this Sunday as well. So um, get ready for that one as well. Let's go to Wes calling from Johnson City. Wes, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, hi, Pastor Arbor. Nice to talk to you again today. I just wanted to uh, bring up something. Been going through a transition uh, uh, in my faith. Been listening to some of these pastors talking about the uh, grace of God and our sin issue. And uh, it seems like the church today, so many are caught up into this works mentality. And uh, it just seems like it takes some time to understand what uh, the grace of God, what God has done. Uh, it's basically uh, regarding sin. And uh, I wanted to make a comment. It just seems like a lot of Christians out there don't seem to quite understand or it hadn't gotten into their mindset that we are totally forgiven, that we're all our sins are forgiven, including future sins, that God has taken care of the sin issue. And yes, sin is still an issue because of what it brings into a person's life. Uh, and these things like pornography or addiction, alcohol, drugs, these kind of things. One thing that I have noticed, and I'd like you to comment on that, is that it seems that uh, I see these Christians struggling with these things, and uh, they're trying to resolve them in their own strength and their own power, and it seems like God is just letting them do so until they finally realize that they can't do it. And then the good Lord seems to step in. Of course, he could step in at any time. He could deliver someone at a moment's notice, because I've seen people that were delivered that way. But it seems like once you understand and get a, 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 a revelation of what God wants to do, and once you quit trying in your own power, your own strength, and your own struggles, uh, that uh, a lot of times God will step in and deliver you from something. It's like how serious do you want to get delivered? How serious do you want this relationship with the Lord your God? And because he's, he's, you know, he's, he's wanting to move on your behalf. And uh, the sin issue I was talking about earlier, it just seems like, you know, I keep hearing talk, people talking about sin. We have to get a revelation, and I know many have, and many it just seems like it's taken some time, including myself, that our sin is forgiven. It's totally wiped out being a born-again new believer uh, filled with the Spirit. And, yeah, there's a battle that we're still in, but uh, the work is done. And I'd like for you to comment on that, if you would. I can do that. I can do that, Wes. Thank you very much. Very well stated. Right. And I couldn't right, agree with you more. Brother. Thank you, Wes. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, Wes. Uh, Romans 3.24 says we were justified freely. Um, this was a watershed in my walk with the Lord. I was about a year old in the Lord. And like most people, beating myself up because of my constant failures. And uh, I was just going through the book of Romans. I, I've read it um, uh, at that point probably 20 or 30 times already. And, and, and I just really wanted to get it. And one day, uh, it was almost as though Jesus was there looking over my shoulder. And we're going through Romans chapter 3. Now, I don't know how God works with everybody else. But, but, but when I'm in the scriptures and Jesus really wants to speak to me about something from me, it's almost like he's looking over my shoulder and he's whispering, hold on, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. I read all the way through chapter 3. For all have sinned and fallen short of God, for the, the glory of God. And, and it's in the continuous present tense, so this is something that never leaves us. 
but we are justified. The word justified means just as if I'd never sinned freely. It didn't cost me anything. Well, one day, as the Lord was saying, now that's it, he spoke to my heart and said, why are you still struggling over sins that I'd forgiven 2,000 years ago? And for me, Wes, that was a revelation. Uh, like everybody else, I wanted to prove to God he made a good choice. I wanted to prove to God that he could count on me. Uh, if I messed up, I felt really, really bad. Like, oh, I've disappointed you, Jesus. You're not going to love me anymore. And and that revelation to me was, was life-changing. It happened in an instant. And I can still experience it like it happened just a second ago. That's how fresh it is in my mind and heart. Now, here's the problem. A lot of the Christians who you're talking about who struggle so mightily with guilt from sin, uh, they don't really know what the Bible teaches because they're not in the Word. They're not studying to, to show themselves workmen or women rightly dividing the Word of God. They don't read that Jesus is the author, the originator, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. We don't read that Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And it's almost as though we try to prove, okay, God, you saved me, and I'm so grateful, but now I'm going to prove that you made the right choice. Um, we, we need to know, all of us, that we're going to sin continually. We also need to understand from this passage, and this was my revelation, Wes, that the minute I sin, if I ask for forgiveness, I'm purified from all unrighteousness, and I'm in perfect standing with the Lord. And if I don't understand that, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, if I don't understand that, then I'm going to sin again because I'm going to be focused on me instead of being focused on being with Jesus. So grace is a wonderful thing. It's not just grace that saves, but it's grace that lives every single day. The problem, as I said, is that too many of us, we, we live our lives like it depends on us. And we're trying to fight in our own effort, but self-effort fails every time. And the truth is, for a lot of people, and my church hears this over and over, we just don't feel like we're forgiven unless we felt really bad for a long time. And when we do that, all we're doing is wasting time. We're falling right into the hands of the enemy. So Wes, great observations. I agree with you completely. There's one other objection. It's a human objection, and Paul deals with it in the book of Romans. Well, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? People actually believe, if I don't feel really bad enough, well, I might as well sin. But the Bible says, King James, God forbid. In other words, may we be far from that sin, and we can walk in freedom instead of under condemnation. And that, Wes, is the difference, the difference. Let's go to Victor calling back. Victor, thanks for calling back on line three. You're on the air. Victor, are you there? Yes, sir. Hi, Victor. Thanks for taking my call. Sorry I had to hang up earlier. My question is, I, I was listening to the previous program on the same station, and I was listening up uh, talking about the uh, the Lord's Supper. I don't know you call it the communion, but uh, they they, uh, they mentioned, you know, that they're agreed, both agreed that the um, the Lord's Supper, uh, it, it, the, the Christ is there, and uh, you know, and and. Uh, they made no mention that, that, that the Catholic Church believes that, that he's being sacrificed over and over and over again. And 
and I just, you know, I know that uh, Christ Himself said to do this in, in, in remembrance of me. And then in, in, in Hebrews, where it talks about that, uh, you know, there's no more, uh, you know, back in, in the Old Covenant, it was uh, they're sacrificing daily, you know, the animals and all that for the sins. And then that the high priest would go once a year, uh, and that would be for the whole nation uh, for uh, for the uh, sins forgiven for a year. And that, and, but now Christ, you know, once and for all. So. Um, I was wondering if you could add on to that, to the defense of that. And I'll go ahead and um, hang up and listen on the radio. Thank okay, you, thank you, Victor. I appreciate it very much. You know, it, 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 it is um, wearisome for me um, because of religious tradition. Uh, even Luther, when he nailed the 95 Thesis on the door at Wittenberg, even Luther held on to his... Catholic roots. You know, Luther never wanted to leave the Catholic Church. He just wanted to reform it. So he he, he proffered the, the doctrine of, of justification by grace alone through faith alone. But he kept all of the other trappings of Catholicism, why the Lutheran Church to this day believes that that uh, the bread and the and the and the cup become the body and the blood of Jesus. The Catholic Church has always believed that transubstantiation or consubstantiation, depending on the perspective. But, you know, the Bible couldn't be any more clear, Victor, that um, this is a symbol. Do this in remembrance of me. When Jesus said, this is my body broken for you, that was at the beginning of 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 the last, what we call the Last Supper, and he held it out. He didn't mean the bread was his body. He was still in his body. His body hadn't been given yet. And we're to do it in remembrance of the Lord, uh, that makes it a memorial. Now, it doesn't make it any less spectacular. It's an honor and it's a privilege. And Jesus, to be sure, is there. But it's not that he's there because of the communion elements. He's there enjoying that we're remembering what the represent, what those elements represent. Our way to heaven, his death in our place. His blood given, his body broken, punished in fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50. For us, Psalm 22. So um, there's nothing more than religious tradition that the elements actually become the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no biblical support for it at all. And frankly, um, while it's not a, an essential of our faith, it's not one of those things that uh, falls into the trappings of heresy. Um, the people that take it as such are the ones getting ripped off. It's almost like they're looking for some, some spiritual experience when in fact Jesus wants us to experience him. And in many of these churches, that is the means of communicating grace. That is not what Jesus taught at all. So, Victor, you understand um, what the Bible teaches, I think, really, really clearly. And the only reason people hold on to it is because it's always the way the church has done. The Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, the Lutheran Church, um, it makes them goosebumpy. And I'd rather come to the table and eat with Jesus with joy than goosebumps. So, Victor, I hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much. Zach, we're really sorry that you had to hang up. Uh, line is available. Um, here is... Where am I going here? 
a question from our mobile app from Scott. Uh, if Jesus quoted scripture, would that make the quoted scripture messianic? For example, the beginning of verse 5 in Psalm 31. Uh, yeah, Scott, that's what makes it messianic. It's it's a passage of scripture that points directly to him. Now, that's not the only application there, of course. Uh, Job quoted this passage of scripture. Uh, um, Jeremiah quoted this passage of scripture, uh, or this particular psalm. Um, so there's long-term and short-term fulfillment. But um, yes, when you find a psalm in particular, particular, it's always been generally accepted as as messianic, uh, it's because it pointed to a very specific um, incident in Jesus' life, or as you point out, it was because he quoted the psalm himself. So it, it is messianic, uh, and that's the proof, that's one of those great things where we have New Testament validation on on um, Old Testament Scripture. That's New Testament light on Old Testament Scripture. Uh, here's another Richard from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, good day to you and God bless you. Thank you. Uh, he says, I just want to say joy of Jesus was so awesome. Oh, I don't know who this Richard is, but great. Uh, I just want to say that this joy of Jesus was so awesome. I'm so happy and blessed that I had not only the opportunity to meet you, but to be around such people of faith and experience the love that they showed to everyone who came out. The love that we shared to complete strangers in the home was truly inspiring. It makes me proud to call myself a Christian. I was thinking to myself the entire time there that this is where Jesus would want to be if he was here. I did have a question. I know you've mentioned it before and you've spoken highly of the 1984 NIV Bible, but what Bible translation would you recommend me to start my race or my journey uh, in faith? Jesus Christ. King James is a little advanced for me. Uh, Michael, I don't think uh, it's advanced. I just think it's like old in the language. It uh, doesn't flow anymore. Uh, let me suggest the New Living Translation. I think you'd like that really, really well. If you can't find the 1984 uh, NIV, uh, the New Living Translation is a great Bible. Uh, one of the great things you can do with the computer Bible programs is you can find um, um, one computer program that will have six or seven or eight different translations. I think mine has like nine different translations on it, so it gives us the ability to to kind of compare uh, different passages of Scripture. But I would think the either the 84 NIV or the New Living Translation, uh, the New King James is fine. Uh, the English Standard Version, the ESV, is also good. Um, but but for readability, for somebody who's new, um, as you are to the Lord, Michael, just starting your walk, um, I think the NLT would be a good alternative to the um, 84 NIV. Uh, let me also say, Michael, now that I know who you are, you, you, Michael doesn't come to our church, uh, but he's uh, been listening to the radio program and called, uh, sent questions in before. Um, but Michael is the one that I talked about who came to Joy of Jesus. I, we invited people out. He says, I'm here to work. And uh, I want to thank you so much, Michael. Uh, it was nice to meet you. And it's great to see your heart at work. And thank you for jumping in. And you're right. It, it really was a wonderful time. Um, and you know, I don't know how many of us from Calvary Chapel were there. I'm going to guess there were six or seven hundred uh, just from our church uh, that were serving. Uh, Michael, I get to be around those people all the time. I, I can't tell you what inspiration it is. It, it's almost as though there's no possible way that, that I could backslide because these men and women abs- absolutely shame me with their devotion to Christ. And uh, it, it was it was just an afternoon that's almost indescribable. So thank you for doing your best to describe it. 
How are we doing on time? Do we have? Nope, we don't have time for questions, so let me get to a question. Uh, here's one I can answer. Ted, he says, I know that you and Paula are an interracial couple, but how do I explain to someone who says the Bible forbids interracial marriages? Well, Ted, what I would tell them is to actually read their Bible, to study it, rather than read it with some prejudice or read it with some preconceived idea about what's right and wrong. Just read it. God forbids mixed marriages. Now, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, he's talking to Israel. He didn't want them to intermarry with the pagan peoples around them because he knew the pagan women would be a stumbling block to the men, and it turned out they were. They would bring idol worship into the camp of Israel. So he said, do not marry outside your faith. That's what a mixed marriage is because we live in the 21st century and we think of mixed marriages as black and white or brown and white or brown and black or, uh, you know, that, that's to miss the whole point. In the New Testament, we're told not to be unequally yoked together. So all these thousands of years later, he still doesn't want his people marrying outside of the faith. Now think of it this way, Ted. How is it possible to marry somebody who doesn't love your Jesus? How is it possible? I understand attraction. I understand um, um, how we get involved with people. But that's why God warned Israel. It's why he warns us not to entertain those situations because in entertaining those situations, we're setting a trap for ourselves. So that's what I would tell him to do. Actually study his Bible. There is no Jew or Greek, no male or female, no slave or free. That's New Testament. There's two groups of people from God's perspective, the saved and the unsaved. And he wants the saved to go win the lost. But when we marry the lost, then our walk is compromised. And Paul and I have faced this before. We've actually been told in Texas that we're not fit to preach the gospel because we're a mixed couple. But you know what? We just basically pray for them and go on doing what we're supposed to do because we actually understand what the Bible says. So the Bible does not forbid interracial marriage. The Bible clearly forbids. And this is something that's interesting to me. A lot of the people who are choosing to believe that my marriage to Paula is a sin think nothing about a believer married to an unbeliever as long as they're the same race. Again, I want to emphasize, Ted, there's one race that belongs to God that's the saved. Everybody else is part of the other race, the unsaved. And God wants everybody saved. So I hope that helps, Ted. Thanks very much. Hey, thank you for the phone calls today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand on for Life. Again, thank you for all of you from the K, uh, KSLR audience who took the time to come out and to introduce yourselves to Paula and to me. It was really great. Uh, we had a wonderful time tonight. The Men's, Women's, and Youth Bible Studies. Paula's teaching at 7. We'll see you then. God bless you. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.